John Adams was a Unitarian. So was his friend Jefferson. Temperamentally, they couldn't have been more different. Yet together, they drafted the declaration we celebrate this weekend. Jefferson might be characterized as a flawed idealist and an optimist. Adams was something of a grump and curmudgeon who knew well that human beings can hope for the wrong thing at the wrong time or hope in the wrong people. Later, the two became political rivals, ran against each other for president of the country. Yet late in their lives, which ended, of course, on the same day, the 50th anniversary of the Declaration, they had renewed their friendship and written to one another many letters, often, often about liberal religion. Religion is people. It may express itself as ideas. It may take form in groups and institutions. Leaders may develop, but before anything else, religion is people. Those are the first words in my new book, Universalists and Unitarians in America, A People's History. It is not only a bit of an homage to the late Howard Zinn and his People's History of the United States, but it attempts to tell the story not by those who became president, even of the denomination as I did, but the story of our religious people through ordinary Universalists and Unitarians. All too often, because we got named for theological ideas by our opponents, I might add, we've emphasized intellectual history. Because we have been more influential than numerous, we have tended to emphasize our luminaries because we have been self-conscious about our fragility in merely a thousand congregations, we have emphasized institutional history. But just as we can look up at the night sky when it isn't being illumined by fireworks and see only the brightest stars, and miss those of the second and third orders of magnitude that are needed to fill out the most interesting patterns. So in my people's history, I aim at telling stories of some people who merely lived our faith without getting famous for it, at least not down to our time. Let me give just two examples, one from each side of our denominational family and from different eras. In the fateful year 1929, as the Great Depression began, Time Magazine named as its Man of the Year one Owen D. Young, a Universalist layman. The humorist Will Rogers, who said, I don't belong to an organized political party, I'm a Democrat, <laughs> said that he wanted Owen Young to be his candidate for the Democratic nomination for President of the United States in 1932. Yet Young today is almost entirely forgotten. 
Then he was known as perhaps the most progressive business leader in America, a peacemaker, and an advocate for ordinary workers. He grew up on a farm and at age 15 became head of the Sunday school in a little Universalist church in Van Hornersville, New York. A seminarian came to preach there in the summer and reported back to the president of his school that he was impressed with Owen, but the family would never let him go to college. He was needed on the farm. The president himself came down to the farm, offered a full scholarship, and Owen became an attorney focused on public utility law just as America was becoming electrified. In the 1920s, he became chairman of the board of General Electric, the founder of RCA, and the founder of NBC. As a peacemaker, he went twice to Europe to ask the victors in World War I to ease up on reparations from Germany that were causing hyperinflation there and the rise of Hitlerism. At GE, he provided pensions and disability and health insurance that helped to influence those policies in the New Deal. And he advocated not just for a living wage, but for what he called a cultural wage, ample enough for workers and their families to improve their lives through education and culture. He also made generous pledges charitable gifts to his church, funding the Universalist National Memorial Church in Washington, where the bell tower is the Owen D. Young Peace Tower, to his alma mater, St. Lawrence University in New York, where the library is named for him, and to the first professional school in America for the study of foreign relations at Johns Hopkins. And then the bottom fell out of the economy. Soon, Young owed more than he was worth and rather than run for president, he sat his family down and told them he intended to work to pay those commitments and that he would support Franklin Roosevelt. He set about doing what he could to keep others employed and reassured his family that they'd never lack for education or basic security themselves, but they shouldn't expect any longer to live lavishly. Toward the end of his long life in the 1950s, Owen D. Young could be found along Route 1 on the east coast of Florida selling grapefruit from a roadside stand outside the modest home to which he had retired. He, my friends, is one of my unsung Universalist Unitarian heroes. Universalism's faith in a loving God not only precluded belief in an eternal hell, its larger hope, as one Universalist put it, was really here in this world. Since we're all going to the same place in the end anyhow, they said, we better start trying to treat one another decently right here and now. American Universalism has often cited as its founder an English-born preacher, John Murray, but it actually arose fairly spontaneously during the time of the Revolution among ordinary 
farmers in the hill country of inland New England without benefit of clergy. Which brings me back to the Unitarian side of our family and to a distant cousin of John Adams, Hatta Adams, whom you probably have not heard of either, but who grew up 20 miles southwest of here in then rural Medfield. Her father had graduated from Harvard, but was far too bookish and shy to be a preacher or a lawyer or even a successful merchant. He tried to sell books to the farmers who were his neighbors unsuccessfully and tutored their sons in Latin and Greek so they could get into college and gave his daughter the same education. During the revolution when Harvard closed with the college buildings used to house Washington's army, students were sent out to places like Medfield and one of them gave Hannah a book that turned her eventually into America's first scholar of comparative religion. She'd heard of nearby Universalists. She knew of Quakers and Baptists and Anglicans and Catholics and Jews. She knew that not everyone belonged to a congregational church of the standing order like this one or Medfield's first parish. But when one of the rusticated students gave her a book that condemned all of these variants, as just forms of heresy, her, her curiosity was piqued. She began investigating how other people's faith was described by themselves. She wanted to write down their own self-understandings. She even wrote to the first Roman Catholic bishop in the United States, John Carroll, to ask if her Protestant background had caused her to mischaracterize Catholicism. One of her sources on Asian religion was the Unitarian minister of Salem's East Church, William Bentley, who preached down by the docks in the era of the China and India trade and would tell ship captains, going to France, eh? Bring me that new French-Persian dictionary. I want to teach myself Persian. He learned 19 languages and became the only man in America who could translate Arabic, the, doing it for Secretary of State Jefferson with such impressive dignity that Jefferson offered him the presidency of the new University of Virginia. Through him, Hannah was able to give reasonably good characterizations in the 1780s and 90s of the differences between Sunni and Shiite and Sufi Islam, which most Americans are still incapable, it would seem, of grasping. Hannah Adams, who never married, may even have become the first American of either gender to earn her living primarily through her writing. She wrote on things like world geography, New England history, and topics of interest to both women and men that just weren't, weren't taught in colleges, not that colleges were open to women. She wasn't alone, however. 
One of her rivals was the Reverend Jedediah Morris, an arch-Calvinist minister at the First Parish Church in Charlestown, where John Harvard had served. He literally stole some of Hannah's work and published it as his own. This while he was condemning Unitarians for stealing the non-creedal covenantal tradition of New England Congregationalism. Hannah's Unitarian friends sued on her behalf, and Morse was found guilty. But even then, he refused to pay the judgment. When his own Calvinist congregation found out, they convicted him of unchristian behavior and separated his, him from his pastorate. The ultimate irony is that Morse's own more famous son, Samuel, by first vocation a painter, then the inventor of the telegraph and of Morse code, joined a Unitarian church <laughs> down in Baltimore, where Channing, whose great preaching in Boston made Hannah one of his congregants, also found a follower. I could go on. I love our history and the way it is tied to the history of this nation. The way progressive religion has been the core of America at its best. America, said the Unitarian historian Sidney Mead, the nation with the soul of a church. Try to change it, you had better appeal to its soul. But try its progressive soul, not its regressive one. Those who don't know history, after all, as Santayana said, are condemned to repeat it and to misplace their hope. Perhaps you've done that. I certainly have. Perhaps some of you have misplaced for a time your, your hope in the, in the project of getting rid of religion itself, thinking that religion functions chiefly as a source of division and conflict only to discover that just as nature abhors a vacuum, so does the human soul. We are humans because we trust and hope and love. Often the wrong things, to be sure, as Adams knew. We hope for full reconciliation when it is really not possible, this side of conflict or the grave as our universalist forebearers also knew. So there are two spiritual stances possible for us, it seems to me. One is to try to give up hoping. And good luck with that, I would say, the side of the grave, though, though some sages actually commend it. Buddhists say that hope, as we humans practice it, can become almost an addiction. And I can agree. I said to my soul, wrote T.S. Eliot, whose grandmother, Abigail Adams Cranch Eliot, a niece of Abigail Adams, helped her spouse to found the Unitarian Church in St. Louis. I said to my soul, be still and wait without hope. For hope would be hope for the wrong thing. Wait without love. For love would be love of the wrong thing. There is yet faith, but the faith 
and the love and the hope are all in the waiting. So when your hope, this side of the grave, is disappointed, I'd say wait a minute. And then, then if you are like me, you will find it impossible not to reinvest that hope, hopefully a bit more wisely. That's what I tried to say when with Rebecca Parker, the Methodist minister who serves as president and professor of theology at our UU seminary out in Berkeley, I wrote A House for Hope, The Promise of Progressive Religion in the 21st Century. Its whole message, I think, was summed up at a commencement not long ago, when one Sarah Sawe, a young Muslim woman, gave the baccalaureate speech at the University of California and talked about the way in which all faith traditions call human beings to faith and hope and inclusive love. She ended by quoting Wordsworth's lines written above Tintern Abbey, a religious ruin, filled, quote, not only with a sense of present pleasure, but with pleasing thought that in this moment there is life and food for future years. And so I dare to hope. Hope, said Sarah, by its very nature, is an act of defiance. Perhaps she was thinking of her age mates in the Arab Spring. It is not easy. It is not simple. It is not born out of ignorance or naivete. It is born out of the ashes of doubt and of recurring despair. Hope, therefore, as spiritual humanist Václav Havel says, hope is never the same as optimism. It is not the assurance that all will be well. It is not prognostication. Rather, it is an orientation of the spirit in the face of not knowing. It is lives pointed toward that point on the horizon beyond which none of us can see, but toward which we sense we must keep moving if there is to be meaningful life for those who will follow us. And while more traditional faith points backward in nostalgia or in fear, it is the persistent orientation of progressive religion in all cultures. No culture, not our nation or any in the global community, can be saved without its lived embodied perpetuation in houses of hope like this one. So in this time, this repeated time of national disorientation and division, let us celebrate its great anniversary and leave this place, not in despair, but in defiant and persistent hope. And let us embody that hope, not in words alone, but like Hannah and like Owen, in the very way we lead our lives. Passing its 
eternal qualities, if not its nearer aims, which may die. Unto those who know us and those who will follow. And so may it be. Amen.